Welcome to Relentless Truth with John Warren, the podcast that extracts truth from a wide range of topics, revealing who God is, who we are, and how we relate to each other. Now, here's John with this week's powerful and practical insights. Welcome to Relentless Truth. I'm John Warren. It is good to be with you again. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Also, go to our website, johnwarrenmedia.com, for additional information about our work or to send a comment or question via our contact form. Also, you can email me at john at johnwarrenmedia.com. Well, we've been moving our way through Romans. Again, we're, we're surveying this book. This is an important compendium of theology written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome. And uh, that, that church was a strong church. Paul's already said early in the book that uh, their faith was well known throughout the world. We've talked about chapters one and two, man's self-sufficient righteousness, self-righteousness, self-sufficiency. And we've talked about all the challenges that brings, and we have arrived at chapter three. Now, again, I am just surveying this book, and I'm doing so because it has been so meaningful to changing the lives of Christians who struggle and non-believers who want to believe and don't quite understand the gospel. There's just beauty in this letter, this book of Romans. You can find it in any New Testament. I would encourage you, if you if this is new to you, to perhaps purchase an English Standard Version of the Bible. A New American Standard is fine. NIV works. New King James Version is fine. But take a look at this book. Read this 16-chapter book of the Bible that is so important, written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome at a time when Rome was thriving, but they were idol worshipers. And Paul is writing because he's, well, well, he wrote them while he was at Corinth in about, I think it's 57 or 58 AD. And he wrote so thoroughly about the gospel. The theme is the righteousness of God, really, and or, or justification by faith is, is another way of saying it talking about the theme of this very important book. But he does this full explanation of these beautiful truths because, in part, he loved the church at Rome. He was afraid for his life on his next missionary journey to Jerusalem. And he loved this church and wanted it to have the benefit of of his apostleship, the benefit of his knowledge, his knowledge in Christ, his God-given knowledge about these important truths. So we're the beneficiaries of this. And the reason I'm just kind of deviating from lots of interviews and other interesting things that we talk about is the importance of this, the weightiness of this. I'm not a pastor. I do lots of Bible teaching at a school called Circle Christian School. I get opportunities to speak from time to time on various subjects involving theology and apologetics. And I am pleased to get to do those things, but we're not doing a verse-by-verse exposition of this entire book. We're surveying it. We're doing an overview. Now, nonetheless, we're going to dwell on, we're going to land on the really important truths of this book. And one of the things I haven't mentioned yet 
over the last few weeks as we've been making our way through the first two chapters of Romans. We've arrived at chapter three now. If you've missed the first two, you might want to go back. There's a background episode and then several episodes on chapters one and two. And if you missed all those, you might want to go back and at least just kind of listen to the first one and maybe uh, most of the episodes on chapters one and two just to know where we are. And I'll, I'll recap that in just a second. But I haven't yet talked about the centerpiece of this book, of this letter. And I'm going to get pushback on this because whenever you make a statement like that and you start identifying the, you know, here's the centerpiece, you can always you can always say, no, 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 it's not in chapter 11, it's over here in chapter 8, or no, it's actually the third chapter, or it's the 12th chapter, or it's this verse. And there's just so much weighty material here that is so clarifying. And I'm, I'm going to just say this. I did not understand these truths as a young person. I did not understand these truths as a young adult. Understanding them has changed my life. It has changed the way I see life. It has changed the way I understand theology. It's allowed me to unlock some truth that was previously a mystery. And I say all of that very humbly. This is available to all of us. This is not John saying, I've achieved this. God, in his grace, has disclosed this to all of us. It's available to all of us. So I just want to read chapter 11, verses 33 and following, and you'll hear me do this a lot as we make our way through here, because I think this is the key to understanding this book. Here's what it says. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now, I had the blessing of speaking to the graduating class at Circle Christian School last year at about this time. And I've never done anything like that before. It was It's such a special time. I was actually scared to death because I wanted to keep it light but meaningful and honor the graduates and respect them. But I read this section of scripture in my talk, and I want to talk about this truth every time I get a chance to do so, because it talks about who God is. It talks about the depth, the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. What beautiful truth. And then it puts us, man, in proper position. And I'm just rifling through this, I realize, but just think about this for a second. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Don't we often act like we're God's counselor? Like we're in charge? How could God do blank? I've talked about that a lot over recent episodes. Or in my opinion, God shouldn't, or a loving God couldn't. And that's just not true. Those statements are indicative of the fact that we don't understand who God is. I mean, for crying out loud, go visit a mountain or, or the ocean or or just go find something in nature, go 
go microscopic and look at how complex life is or, or go broader with a telescope and look at the planets and the stars or, or uh, are there any number of things you, you can, we can go to look at, look at God's work in your own life. It puts us in perspective, just ponder scripture that talks about God's omniscience, his being all knowing or omnipotence, his being all powerful or his omnipresence or omnibenevolence, his being all loving. Just think about those things. Ponder the immenseness of God in all of his glory, his transcendence, his being apart from us and his eminence, his being close to us, relational with us. All of those things at once. Those things aren't contradictory. The answer to the question, is God sovereign or do we make choices? The answer to that question is yes. We're talking about God, the God of the universe, who we are to glorify. Now listen to this last verse in chapter 11. For from him and through him and to him are all things. That covers it all, doesn't it? From him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Paul got it, didn't he? Well, he covers this self-sufficiency, self-reliance of man so well in the first two chapters. But, you know, he's just not quite done yet. And we read the first eight verses of chapter three last time, and I'm going to read them again. So let me, let me do that just real quickly. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness, faithlessness, sorry, nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. So we're going to pause right there. That's the end of Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. We pray for, we even long for, God's grace and mercy for ourselves, don't we? But don't we find it unthinkable that God would extend his grace and mercy to those we deem to be less worthy? Think about the arguments that man makes to make themselves, ourselves, righteous. These arguments are man's efforts to affirm self-sufficiency. Why can't we reason our way, we think, to righteousness? Now, look at what Paul's actually saying here. He's anticipating objections. We talked last time about this. This is this is just a wonderful business model for how to conduct a business conversation or how to write a business email. He's doing what we all learned in financial services training. He's anticipating objections. He says, 
then what advantage has the Jew? And, uh, you know, and you start to kind of tune out, don't you? Because you're thinking, well, I'm, I'm not Jewish. But it's important. He's talking to both Jews and Gentiles throughout this book, and he, he just using facts to explain things that apply to both. What is the value of circumcision, he says. So he's explaining how Jews and Gentiles have all received the gospel. Justification by faith applies to both. And he says, much in every way to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Well, we know that to be a fact. But then look at verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? And he says, by no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So our unbelief, our unfaithfulness, doesn't alter God's plan. The cross is not plan B. The cross of Jesus Christ, his finished work, was plan A. God didn't wring his hands throughout the Old Testament thinking, I've got to come up with a solution now. The cross is the center of human history. And our unbelief, our unfaithfulness, doesn't alter God's assurance, guarantee his covenant faithfulness with us. He alone is faithful. And our unbelief doesn't negate, doesn't alter his assurance, guarantee, and covenant faithfulness with us. Remember the purpose of the law. We've got to think about this often. You really can see this in the Psalms beautifully. The purpose of the law is to teach us, to reveal God's character. And the other side of that coin is it it reveals our unrighteousness. But all of our sin, even the most heinous of sins, didn't alter or move or modify or weaken God's guarantee to us, his faithfulness to us. He is faithful. And I just wonder, do we actually believe this, that he's faithful? That we, by definition, don't, can't, won't ever merit his favor through our good works. It's very tempting, I think, as we get older in particular, but even among young people, I see it in 11th and 12th grade students. Sometimes it's very tempting to think, well, you don't know about my sin or you don't know about my thought process or you don't know that I don't read scripture or I haven't been good in this regard or I did this thing or that thing or I have this habit or that habit. We often, even in thinking about our sin and wallowing in our guilt, And I lived years like this. I I didn't realize that, wait a minute, that's a form of self-sufficiency. It's a form of self-righteousness. I know you're going to grow tired of me saying those two word combinations, but it's just true. Even in our sorrow for our sin, we can wallow in guilt and effectually negate God's faithfulness with us, his assurance, his guarantee This is just beautiful. Now, there's another concept that Paul introduces, and this is so important to understand, down in verse 5. 
and he's kind of getting at this in several places in these introductory comments in these first few chapters of Romans. He says, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what should we say? So if, if our unrighteousness, if God is faithful, when we're unfaithful, then what should we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Then why does God have a right to punish us? Why is the wages of sin death? And he says, I speak in a human way to, to let us know that he's, he understands that what the real answer is. Then he says in verse 6, By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Now, I I want us to talk about a, a big word here. It's called antinomianism. It's important to know what antinomianism is. It sounds like a big fancy seminary word, and it's not. It's from the Latin anti or against, and there's a Greek word nomos or or law. It's against the law, going against the law. It's the idea of being lawless. It basically says, the antinomian basically says, I can do whatever I want. Once saved, always saved. I'm in the good column, and I can go live how I want to live. Now, there's kind of a spectrum when you talk about these big picture theology issues. There's a spectrum that starts with antinomianism on one side, being against the law, eat, drink, and be merry, do what you want to do. What we do doesn't matter. Why not do evil that good may come, as Paul said? And then on the other end of the spectrum, there's legalism, which is another errant view that believes that good works are necessary for salvation. So that's antinomianism. It's the, Paul had been accused. So any anytime you teach God's grace, anytime you focus on God's grace, you're going to hear from some religious people who just want so badly for man to be self-sufficient, to earn God's favor through good works. And these are well-meaning people who might actually be true Christians. But doctrines of grace are difficult to accept for us. God is so full of grace and love for us and mercy for us that it becomes difficult for us to really understand. And so Paul had been accused, obviously, he says it here, of being antinomian. But we see in these verses, uh, verses five through eight, that God is just and his justice should not be called into question. Verse four, he says, Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. And, you know, there are so many lessons here. One is, and, you know, of course we all say, well, of course that's true. Amen or whatever. Moving on. Of course God's true. And if people contradict scripture, they're liars. We know that. We've been taught that from an early age. Yeah, but have we? Don't we often think that, well, wait a minute. These people, in fact, I just did this this morning. My wife and I were talking about a book. She said, you know, I read a couple of chapters. It just kind of bothered me a little bit. And I said, oh, let me see. And I grabbed it. And what she asked me to do is read a few of the chapters. And I didn't have time. So I, I just quickly turned it over to the back to see who endorsed it. Yeah, I looked to see what the crowd's doing. That's what we do sometimes, don't we? And if we fall in a certain theological camp, 
I've been guilty of this so many times. And, and sometimes you just, you just do this because you're in a hurry and there's nothing wrong with it, but it's incomplete. You just say, well, are the people I respect doing the right thing? Are they, what are they doing? Are they endorsing this? Are they behind this? Is this gospel coalition? Is this the PCA? And I, I'm not suggesting that Paul's calling those people a liar, but I'm saying the thing that Ben Franklin feared at the founding of our country, the mob rule idea applies here. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. We're all heretics at some level, if heresy is narrowly defined. But I think this concept is important. It's important for us to know scripture. Who's right, the Pharisees who were legalists or the antinomians? The answer is no. No one was right in those two camps. God does not purpose or will according to extraneous influences. Think about this. But according to what he himself is, according to his character. Men prove unfaithful to God's oracles, God's law, his requirements, his sinless, perfect requirements. But he, and he alone, is nevertheless faithful in his promises to us. His faithfulness to us is not dependent on or predicated on our faithfulness to him. That is beautiful. That is a beautiful concept. And no, that does not turn us into these little antinomians who say, oh, well, if that's the case, I can go do what I want. No, we have to take the totality of Scripture and read 1 John. In fact, I'm not even sure we need to read 1 John. I I think we can just look at the totality of Scripture, examine Scripture with Scripture, and even just read the book of Romans and see that, no, a changed heart that is gripped by God's love is transformed. I'm not suggesting we become perfect, but we become everything but antinomian. I would question if you say, well, I can go do what I want now. I checked that box I prayed a prayer, I walked an aisle, I filled out a card, I'm saved, I got baptized, I can go do what I want now. You got a question, although I don't want to create doubts that aren't real, aren't well-founded, but you've got to question that salvation experience if that was your reaction. I think scripture teaches, and back to 1 John again, and others, plenty of others, that the life of a believer, James even says it, that faith without works is dead. And what he means is that True faith, saving faith, is heart-changing. God changes our lives. He doesn't make us perfect, but he transforms us. So why is this true, that God is faithful even when we're not? Well, because he's God. I mean, that's the reason I read that ending section of Romans 11. He cannot be unfaithful to himself. If you read Psalms, oh, I don't know, 51, 52, and 53, You'll see it. This is all about who God is and who man is. Now, Paul clearly understood these truths when he wrote Romans 3. Now, Romans 3, 1 through 8, this section that we've we've kind of been pondering here, is all about God's divine right to judge people. Paul's point is that man wants to deny God this right, this divine right that he has. If you've ever read the divine rights of kings, I think this is a real divine right. God has the right 
to judge people because of who he is. And man desperately wants to justify our sin. We want to justify our sin and deny God this right. It's like this. What is our natural response to authority? What is our natural response? Show me a line on the floor and tell me I can't cross over it. And what do I do? I want to step over it. Naturally. Our response to authority is to push its limits or challenge it. And even if we don't push its limits outwardly, we do so inwardly in our heads. You see, we're learning Paul's teaching in Romans 3, 1 through 8, not just about who God is. He's teaching us that throughout this whole book. But he's teaching us who man is as well. We are little rebellious, self-sufficient sinners. The implications of the fall are far worse than we want to believe. Now, Paul transitions here. Now, we've talked a lot about the judicial language that Paul uses, letter uh, language of the law, language of the courtroom. Well, he changes gears here and goes full on in the courtroom. And he does so beautifully. I would just imagine knowing Paul, not knowing him, but having read everything he's written and knowing a little bit about his life as outlined in Acts, I would just imagine that he wrote this letter with the specifics of the church at Rome in mind, with the specifics of Rome in mind, and he knew that he had an educated audience that would is sophisticated. I guess that's a good way to say it. They understood logic. They were strategic thinkers like he is. They understood the law. The law was important. The rule of law was important. There's another literary work called, I think it's the 12 Tables of Roman Law. that kind of outlines Roman law and how it was structured. Our country's founding was kind of based on some of those principles. So Paul knows he's writing to a legally sophisticated audience. And here's what he says. Now, I want you to, I want us all <laughs> To listen to this, I want to hear these words as I read them. In verse 9, he says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. Now, a number of times, Paul quotes the Old Testament, and he's about to do that in, from various passages. He did it back in that section I read in chapter 11. A part of that was, I think, from Isaiah and part from Job. But listen to what, just forget that for a moment and listen to what he says here. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written. Now think about human pride. Think about the Pharisees. Think about the folks he's already talked about. So he's talking about the immoral people in chapter one, the moralist in chapter two, both condemned because of our self-reliant sin, self-sufficiency. And here's what he says. None is righteous, no, not one. Now, I find that curious. I think I mentioned this before. None is righteous, no, not one. Why is it necessary to say no, not one? If none is righteous, if that was easy to accept, I don't think Paul would have said no, not one. I think he's just making it clear. Paul uses repetition, redundancy, very effectively in his writing. None is righteous, no, not one. That's for that's for those of us who think, well, you know, I'm I'm a little righteous, or or, or wait a minute, I'm not as bad as Hitler, or 
I'm a good person. How many times have you heard that? No, you're, you're actually not a good person in your flesh. No, we're not. In fact, none is righteous. None has right standing. Remember what righteous actually is. Moral right standing, moral rightness, moral correctness. It's, it's this idea of justification, similar Greek words. No, not one. Then he says, no one understands. No one understands? Then he says at the end of verse 11 of chapter 3 of Romans, he says, no one seeks for God. Wait a minute. You mean our churches have it wrong? We're a seeker-friendly church. How many times have you heard that? I know that's a slightly different thing, maybe. But no sinner, no natural-born sinner and that includes all of us, naturally seeks for God. Verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat, verse 13, their throat is an open grave. How about that? Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Notice how much he talks about the mouth here. The venom of asps, a very small poisonous snake, is under their lips. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Then he transition and transitions in verse 15. He's charging. He's using courtroom language. He's charging us. He's charging us all as guilty sinners. Can't you just hear him as an attorney standing there in behind the bar, facing the judge or the jury? Let's say the judge. And he's facing the judge and he's bringing all these counts. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. Verse 17, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And then he goes on in verse 19. Now we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So he's brought 14 counts. I counted them. 14 counts in the courtroom. And then at the end, he says, according to the law... No one is innocent. And every mouth, that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. He, he just said, you're all sitting in the defendant's chair. That's what he said. This section, commentators will call this something like man is evil and doomed. I mean, you don't hear a ton of sermons on this section because it's redundant and depressing, isn't it? But it accurately characterizes who we are. It's interesting that Paul brings all 14 counts. He could have just said, none is righteous, no, not one. He, could, he didn't even have to say, no, not one. None is righteous. He goes on later in verse 23 to say that all have sinned, for all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. That's another way of saying it nicely. 
but he brings these 14 counts. Now, if we sort of go through them slowly, uh, we'll just say it this way. This accusation portion where Paul, just picture him in the courtroom and he's pointing at you and at me in the defendant's chair and he's pronouncing us guilty on 14 counts. I'm not a lawyer, but that's a lot. Those are multiple charges. And then, and he's really saying when he says things like, you know, the poison of asps is under their lips. He's saying these are aggravated charges. These are significant. They're more weighty charges. He's painting just a horrible, guilty picture. The Greek word that he uses in in verse nine, when he says all are under sin, has the meaning to bring an accusation against or press formal charges. I'm going to mispronounce this, but it's something like proato, proatoami. It's a charge, what it means. And then in count one, when he says none is righteous, no, not one, righteousness is the criterion, notice, by which sin is judged. It's important to notice that. This is perfection. Moral perfection is God's criteria. You can go to Psalm 14, 1 through 3 to read about that. But the bad news is that men and women on this earth lack the righteousness necessary to live with God. We are desperately in need of the mediator, Jesus Christ. Now, count two is found in verse 11. And understanding is is not mental, but spiritual. No one understands, no one seeks for God. The world is totally lacking in spiritual discernment. Yet, I find myself expecting the world to be spiritually discerning. But Paul says they're not. All of Scripture says they're not. The natural man is spiritually deranged. Look at 1 Corinthians 2.14 or Ephesians 4.17 and 18. The world is totally lacking in spiritual discernment. No one understands. No one seeks for God. That is count three. No one seeks for God. There's no one who innately seeks after God. Yes, we're made in his image. Yes, we have a hole in us, uh, in our heart, we sometimes say. But people are sinful by nature and want nothing to do with God in our flesh. We're not really naturally seekers. Now, we can come to the end of ourselves and realize that we need a Savior, but we're not naturally seekers of God. Count four is in verse 12. It says, all have turned aside. Together they become worthless. People have not only missed the mark, they've also perverted their path. Humans, like the picture painted in Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, have lost their way like a camel caravan crossing the desert. They've chosen their own way. Self-sufficiency, as Paul explained in the first two chapters, causes us to reject God's righteousness. We've made this choice. Also in verse 12, all have turned aside and become worthless. People can do nothing to contribute to their righteousness or right standing before God. In other words, we can't save ourselves or otherwise please God on our own. It is the most frustrating thing, and I encounter students who, who, who agree with me on this, who experientially agree with me on this. It is the most frustrating thing to try to muster up enough righteousness 
to have right standing before God, to be good enough, to save ourselves. It is frustrating. It's frustrating to diet, isn't it? Okay, I'm going to lose some weight. I'm going to suck it up and I'm going to do better. And that works fine for a couple of days until your stomach is gurgling at lunchtime and somebody else orders something that looks really good. And next thing you know, there are donuts in the office or whatever it is. If we just suck it up and try to do better without help, we often fail, don't we? Well, much more importantly is, is this matter of righteousness, achieving righteousness or right standing before God on our own. We can't please God on our own. You can develop all the checklists in the world. You can have all the good habits. You can try to live your best life now. You can hire a life coach. I'm going to suck it up and do better. You can have an accountability partner. Some of those things are good, but we're not going to achieve righteousness. We are going to frustrate ourselves on our own. Count six, verse 12, no one does good, not even one. No matter what humans do with respect to achieving righteousness, our efforts are as filthy rags. Look at Isaiah 64, 6. Yes, humans are capable of doing some good on earth, but we don't contribute to our right standing before God. Some of the nicest people you'll meet, now some of the cruelest people are people in the church, aren't they? But some of the nicest people you'll meet are the secularists. You know why? Of course you do, because they want to live, you only live once, YOLO. Live your best life now. Have a bucket list. Accomplish all these things. Be good. Leave the world a better place than you found it. It's not that man isn't capable of good. Man's capable of a lot of good. Some people are good-hearted, or they seem to be, but not in terms of God's righteous standard. The point is his standard is higher than we believe it is. Count 7 and verse 13, Paul transitions to the specificity of sin. He references throats, tongues, lips, and the mouths of the sinner. The filth from our mouths is like an open grave. If you look at most of your sin, it involves talking. It involves what we say. Sure, there are, there's our thought life and all the rest, but we're guilty of using our mouths to sin an awful lot. Count 8 and verse 13, they keep Deceiving with their tongues. Deceit is evidence of our unrighteousness. I ask my students, please raise your hand if you've ever lied. And usually the really brave people raise their hands and then everybody else goes, oh, it's okay to raise your hand. And then the rest of the hands sort of trickle upward until we're all raising our hands, including me. Then he says in verse 13, the poison of asps is under their lips. Their mouth, he goes on, is full of curses and bitterness. We were, we were designed to speak the truth of God and praise him continually. That's right. We were designed for that. Man was. Adam and Eve were. But our mouth has been perverted to speaking lies through cursing and bitterness. We learn to curse rather naturally because of our sinful state. If you notice, if you've ever been around people, if you were around people as a young person, who cursed a lot, and Romans 1 talked about our wanting to be around people who do that, if you were, and other things, but if you were around people who cursed a lot, and it became, you know, a lot of us lived at some point in our lives, two different lives. We had, we might have Christian friends, and then we might have worldly friends, and with the worldly friends we curse, with the Christian friends we try not to. How about that? Does that hit close to home? It does for me. And so then, when we lose our temper or certain things happen or 
or we fall, physically fall, or bang our thumb with a hammer, we curse, naturally. It just kind of fits, doesn't it? We didn't have to learn how to do that, really. I mean, we, we did see the pattern from other people. Then he says, count 11, their feet are swift to shed blood. Paul shifts from now from words to deeds. Note this, unjust gain. Read Proverbs 1, 8 to 19. Unjust gain takes away life from those who possess it, who possess the unjust gain. Violent injustice and war against other humans is the result of human depravity. I'm not advocating pacifism. Not entirely. Even the sports that we, the violence in sports that we condone, and and I'm not going to get into the specifics of them, but I'm thinking of the really brutal ones, is indicative of this fall, this sinful condition our guilt under these counts. Count 12, verse 16, destruction and misery are in their paths. Paul's explaining that we, what we receive if we continue in sin. This is what we seek. And God gives us over to what we seek. We've, he's already established that in Romans 1. Count 13 is in verse 17. It says, in the path of peace they have not known. Peace with others is difficult for man. Friendships can be difficult. Communication is critical. Think about this. Rarely will animals destroy their own species to satisfy their hunger. But humans do so for much less. I am so concerned about crime rates in our country. It saddens me that, and I could be wrong about this, but it just feels like from the stories in the press that New York is much safer than it used to be. My wife and I enjoy going to that city. I go to Chicago a fair amount, and they've got serious crime issues. Most every major city does. Peace with others is difficult for man. The path of peace, Paul says, they have not known. Here's one, count 14, the last one. There's no fear of God. This is a quote from Psalm 36, 1. All of these charges stem from the fact that humans don't fear God. The idea is a a respect for God, not just casual respect, like respect your elders, but a, a deep abiding respect for his character. We're caught in this vicious cycle. We're depraved and, and we don't respect God by nature. We have no spiritual understanding and we require the work of the Holy Spirit to break the cycle of our arrogance and ignorance. We shouldn't be surprised after reading this list. Paul has established our guilt so clearly in these 14 counts. We really shouldn't be surprised, should we, that unredeemed people struggle. We really shouldn't be surprised we have these struggles in the church. We might as well just be honest in the context of Romans 3 about the implications of the fall. We're far worse. Man is far worse off in our flesh than we are prepared to admit. Well, we've reached the defense portion of the court proceeding, sort of, when we get to verse 19, but there's nothing to be said in our defense. Paul says that every mouth may be stopped. I can just picture us wanting to stand up, wanting to raise our hand, and then the judge looks over at us, and we lower our hand, 
and say, oh, I really have no defense. We're being left helpless at this point. The verdict is guilty. No man will be justified, Paul says, in his sight. The article before law, the, in verse 19, is is not there in the Greek. So Paul is saying that no human is justified by any law. You see, we're pronounced guilty. And Paul makes this clear. Now he's going to go on. Now now this this is, listen to the beauty of this. We're going to close with this. He's going to go on now in the rest of this chapter and the rest of this book to explain justification by faith. There are two very important words. They're translated into two different English words, but the Greek words are almost identical. This righteous and justify. Justify means to treat us as righteous, to say it simply. When God justifies a person, he pronounces us righteous as if we had never committed any sin. This is beautiful positional truth. He pronounces us righteous, and this occurs by faith. So we repent of our sin. We turn from our sin and turn to him. We turn from our self-reliance, turn to him and become Christ-reliant by faith in him alone. And he saves us and justifies us and treats us as righteous. And next time we're going to read, starting in verse 21, we're going to read the rest of the chapter. The rest of the story is beautiful. Paul continues the courtroom scene using judicial language. I'm going to take a little bit of license and try to explain what's really going on there, what I see in my head as I picture this courtroom scene. I've taken a little bit of liberty today to talk about us as the defendant in a courtroom because that's kind of the spirit of what Paul is saying here. I hope you'll pardon me for that. I hope that picture, that little word picture is helpful. I hope you'll send comments to me via the contact form on the website at johnwarrenmedia.com. And don't hesitate to send an email to john at johnwarrenmedia.com. It would be my pleasure to hear from you and interact with you. I hope you'll share this episode with friends if this has been meaningful, if there's been some truth that Paul has discussed here that has been eye-opening. This next section is, in my opinion, although I shouldn't rank sections of Scripture, but it is among the most important, let's say it that way, in all of Scripture, and I think it will be to you too. This truth, justification by faith, is so important to understand. We've talked about some cool things today, antinomianism, and we've talked about the Pharisees and their legalism. I hope you don't get lost in some of the terminology. I hope it's helpful to you. Please send me your thoughts. Thank you for supporting this podcast. We're just almost at the one year. We're right on the edge. We're a week or two away from our one-year anniversary. That is just exciting and a testimony to God's faithfulness. Thank you for your support. Please do share this episode with friends via email and with social media. And again, don't hesitate to send your comments along. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Relentless Truth with John Warren. Please consider sharing this podcast and subscribe to receive future episodes. 
Connect with John regarding your comments, questions, and show ideas through johnwarrenmedia.com or at John Warren Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. That's all for this episode. Join us next week for another edition of Relentless Truth with John Warren.